Please turn with me once again to the book of Romans and the ninth chapter. The ninth chapter of Romans is a chapter that deals with the sovereignty of God. It details for us in very clear language that God is the one who is sovereignly in control of every man and woman on earth, living today, living in the past, living in the future, believer and unbeliever both. It is God that chooses, that decides what to do with every single person. This is important for Paul to develop for us because of where he is going in his argument concerning the nation of Israel. And we're going to see that to fully understand what is happening in the world today with Israel and with the Gentiles, we need to understand what roles we both play and who is assigning those roles. Israel is God's chosen nation, chosen by God. According to what? To their good and godly character? Not at all. They were chosen according to God's good pleasure. There was nothing that they did as a nation or as individuals that God used to make a determination on whether or not they would be saved. That's true also for the church, not as a chosen entity or nation, but as a collection of chosen individuals. Those who comprise the church were chosen for the very same reason, God's will, not our own will. If it were a matter of our will, then we, we would have chosen to remain in our sins. That was the course that we were on. We were sinners and we loved it. We lived according to our own desires, much as the majority of those in the world do today. But God sovereignly chose us out of that situation. He sovereignly called us out of our own sinfulness and made us alive together with Christ. Praise be to God for doing that for us. But the point that we need to realize is this. In both situations, God saving Israel, God saving those in the church, God is the one who is doing the saving, and it's according to his sovereign will. Now, God's sovereign control is really a simple matter. It's simple to understand. But, and I've said this before, don't mistake what's simple for what's easy. You read through this here in chapter 9, and it's very black and white what Paul is saying. God chose Jacob, but he hated Esau. God showed mercy to Moses and the Israelites, but he hardened Pharaoh. He determined that out of the two twins, he would save one. He determined that out of the two men living in the same period of time, he would choose one to lead his people and the other to demonstrate the power of his wrath. That's simple to see here, but it's not easy for us to comprehend. God's sovereignty is sometimes difficult for people to take. It's not always easy for us to accept. Why? If it's simple, then why isn't it also easy? Because we don't like what that means for us, and we don't like what it means for those around us either. When we say that God is sovereign, then we must acknowledge that God is free to do with his creation as he sees fit. When you get all the way through Romans chapter 9, you see your proper place in God's plan. You see exactly where you stand in relation to where God stands. He is the creator. We are the creation. He is almighty God, and quite simply, we are not. In no way are we his equals. He is the potter, we are but a lump of clay. Is God free to do with his creation as he sees fit? Of course he is. Why wouldn't he be? He made us. He didn't even have to do that. 
but he did. And as the creator, he could make us for any purpose in any way that he wants. And that fits within his perfect character. If you understand who God is and who we are, then the idea of God being free to do as he sees fit is a simple one. But then we have questions about this, namely in two different areas. The first question that people have is, isn't it unfair for God to choose some for salvation and not others? Isn't it unjust for him to do that? And that was the question that Paul dealt with in verses 14 through 18, where Paul asked and answered, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. There is absolutely no injustice with God. How do we know that? Because God is the very definition of what's just. And as the definition of justice, we need to understand that how he has acted in the past gives us our example of what true justice is. His actions are the very standard of what is just. And so what is just? Well, he told us in verse 18, So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. This is the way God acts. This is what is just. It is always just for God to show mercy to whomever he desires and to harden whomever he desires. Remember, we talked about the response that every person has towards God's word, toward his truth. It either brings them closer to life they respond in a way that alters their lives and it edifies them, or they respond by being hardened, a further rejection of his word, which brings them closer to death. We looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 2 last time, a passage where Paul talks about our role with the word of God. And he said in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 2, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. There, in verse 14, Paul is talking about believers, those that manifest the sweet aroma of his knowledge in every place. This is the idea of believers communicating, sharing the knowledge of God, the truth of God, and it's coming out of us like a sweet aroma, a scent, or as he says in the very next verse, like a fragrance. He says in verse 15, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We give off this scent or fragrance wherever we go among people. And there are only two types of people. There are those who are being saved and there are those who are perishing. And there are therefore two types of reactions that people have when they get a whiff of this scent. Verse 16 says, To the one an aroma from death to death, and to the other an aroma from life to life. The result of the word of God in a person's life is either life to life or death to death. It is either a message or word that leads to life or to death and further into death. And it's that leading to death that is the hardening of God. It pushes them further and further away. The sinner becomes more and more calloused to the word of God, hardened to it. Now, we don't like that. We don't like to hear it, and we don't like to acknowledge it. The question comes up, what about my loved ones? What about my friends? What about those I share the gospel with? Are you telling me that I could actually be doing them more harm than good? No, not at all. 
Because one of the rhetorical questions that Paul will ask when we get to chapter 10 is in verse 14, where he says, How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Salvation always comes through hearing. No one will ever come to saving faith without hearing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we don't know who is perishing and who is being saved, or more precisely, who has been chosen and who hasn't been chosen. So we still need to share the gospel with everyone. We have no choice. We have no other option. That is our calling. That is why we are here. So the whole concept of hardening and showing mercy is a very real concept in the sovereign plan of God. But this doesn't answer all the questions. In fact, it brings up more. And fortunately, God knows that it does, which is why he has Paul ask and address the next question in verses 19 through 24. This is a question that at one point or another, we have probably all asked or at least wondered about. And many of us may still be wrestling with today. If God has such control over all men, and if men are shown mercy or hardened through no act of their own, then how can it be said that man is responsible for his own sin, or even for his own obedience? He can't resist the will of God, can he? If God is sovereignly in control of my life and I sin, then how can I be held accountable for that sin? How can an unbeliever be held accountable for his sins? Aren't we simply both doing his will if he is in control? That's the question that this situation brings up. And we see here God anticipating this question being asked, because once again, just like the last question, he includes it here in his word. But the answer doesn't give us so much of the information as we're looking for, as much as it serves to remind us of who we are and in relation to God, it reminds us of our place before him. In essence, even the answer given is a lesson to us of the sovereignty of God. So in verse 19, we see this question asked. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Many people have raised this question when talking about the sovereignty of God. Now the first thing that I want to note here the fact that this question is raised as a possible objection proves that we are talking about the sovereign choice of God in election. It shows that we are talking about God's sovereign choice in determining that some will come to him in salvation and others he turns over to their own sinful ways. Now, how does it show that? If, as some believe, God simply looked ahead in time and saw how people would react saw what they would choose when presented with the gospel and based his decision of election on that reaction, then this question is irrelevant. It's unnecessary. Because the concept of resisting his will wouldn't apply. It would mean that it wasn't his will, but the choice was really man's will. And if it's really man's will that's in view here, there wouldn't be any question that man is at fault. But here... We see by the objection that God's will is in effect here. He is in control. That's the entire point of the argument. God is choosing. How can anyone resist what he has chosen? So once again, we clearly see that we're talking about God's sovereign control in the lives of men and women, which is why this question is asked here. 
So what's the question? What's the issue? What exactly is being asked? How could God, being in sovereign control and making this decision to harden sinners, hold them accountable for their sin? This is raised based on God's desire to harden sinners, which we've just seen in the previous verses. If God shows mercy to only some, and he hardens the rest, how can those hardened possibly be found at fault? How can it be said that they are responsible for their sin? If God is sovereign, and we know that he is, and if only those whom he calls to salvation will be saved, then aren't the rest lost because he's chosen them to be lost, and therefore it's not really their fault? You can't really blame them for that, can you? That's really the question that Paul is asking here. And I would hazard a guess that we've all asked that question at some point in our lives, usually right about the time that we start to read about or study the concept or the doctrine of election. That's when this comes up. So that's the question at hand. And now we get ready to see the way that God wants this answered. Are you ready? Look at the first part of verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, old man, who answers back to God? Whoa, there's a buzzkill. That's not exactly the answer that we're looking for, is it? Kind of leaves you with an empty feeling. I mean, this is a big question. If we could just know the answer to this, we'd have election and God's sovereignty all figured out. This is all we need to know to bridge the gap between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Doesn't Paul realize that? Doesn't God realize that? Maybe God doesn't understand how hard this is for us. Maybe he doesn't realize how difficult a concept this is for us to grasp. That, that might be what we tend to tell ourselves. But we need to realize something. Knowing this little bit of information, while it may seem important to us and to our plan of understanding God's word, it's not our plan that we need to be concerned with. You see, it's not God's plan to lay it out for us in that way. God has decided to answer the question in a different way. Just about a year ago, we were finishing up our study in the book of Daniel. And in the last chapter of the book of Daniel, in chapter 12, Daniel had questions for God. Daniel wanted to know more about the future events that God had in store for the nation of Israel. He had just been told of all of these future events important things that needed to be sealed up and preserved for the end of time. And as he was face to face with the pre-incarnate Christ, he asked for more information. It says in Daniel chapter 12, verse 8, As for me, I heard, but could not understand. So I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? A reasonable question. He wanted to know and understand more about all these things that he had just been told. It was important enough for him to ask. Well, the answer came in verse 9. He said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. That's all you're going to get for now, Daniel. That's it. This knowledge is not for you today, but it's for those who will come after you. That probably wasn't the answer that Daniel was looking for either. But that's the answer that he got. Now, do we like that? No, we probably don't. Daniel probably didn't like it. But we need to understand that God has not revealed everything to us. And he might not reveal everything to us. 
we're going to be learning things about God for all eternity. And we will never know it all, never know all that God knows. What do we have here? We've come to a subject that is to remain secret to God. We're not given this information. Turn with me back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29. In Deuteronomy 29, down in verse 29, we read, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. What's this verse saying? Basically, it says that we are responsible to know and understand what God has revealed to us, but no more than that. It's important for us to keep in mind that we can only take the word of God as far as what we've been given. God promised us as his children that the scriptures give us all that we need to be adequately equipped for every good work. He has revealed to us all that we need. However, it does not say that he has revealed everything to us, but there are still many things that we don't have, we don't understand. But you know what? That's okay. I know it may not seem like it's okay, but it really is okay. Because there are many things that our finite minds wouldn't be able to handle anyway. And quite honestly, the answer to this question is probably one of them. How can man be both under the be both under the sovereign control of God and yet still be responsible for his own sin. I don't understand it. I don't see how that could be possible. Well, we're in good company because no one can really understand it. Now, I know that this quote-unquote answer seems like a non-answer, and we don't like that. But that's that answer that we're given. So what do we have to do? How do we need to respond to this? We need to realize that this is one area, just like every area, where we need to submit to the authority of Scripture and recognize that this is all the answer that we're going to get. Now, some people still aren't content with that. That's not fair. I want to know. Well, Paul anticipates that response. Who are you to answer back to God? The language is presented here in a way that reveals that we don't have the right to question this. And really, this response fits with the truth that he is about to reveal to us, to show us our place where we fit into the sovereign plan of God. As the ones who have been sovereignly acted upon, who have been saved through no reason of our own, what right do we have to question the purposes or the workings of God? He goes on in verse 20 and says, The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? We are mankind. He is Almighty God. This analogy he uses puts our relationship with God in perspective. And this is what he's going to develop down through the next several verses. The analogy has to do with things made of clay. And the clay cannot challenge the one who is molding it. The thing created cannot challenge the one who created it. That's the point that he's driving at here. He continues with the analogy in verse 21. It says, Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common or dishonorable use? Verse 22. 
What's interesting here is the words for honorable and common, they're the same words. One is the negative of the other or the opposite of the other. So one's common and one's uncommon, or one is honorable and one is dishonorable. The idea here is that it's up to the creator to take the clay and decide what he will do with it. Now we understand this, right? We see examples of this. We see this at home. We have things at home that are made of the same material. They have different levels of value to us. The same ceramic that might be used for a nice vase or a planter, maybe maybe the planter that we use to display the flowers that we got for mom for Mother's Day. That same ceramic might also be what the toilet is made out of. Who decided what to use it for? The one who's doing the creating. It's the same material, just used for different purposes, according to the will of the creator. Do you think the material being used to be a toilet objected or questioned why it was being used in this way? Of course not. This is the analogy that Paul uses for mankind and God, the Creator. Now, we may not like this analogy. This is an analogy that we don't like to hear. Why? Because I'm not a toilet or a vase. I'm a person with feelings. I have opinions. I have my own free will. Yes, but did God use any of that when making his decision? And we might say to ourselves, well, I'd like to think so. Well, if you do think that, then we need to reread verse 16, where Paul said, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. No, it doesn't depend on your will, free or otherwise. The choice was made before you had any feelings, before you had any opinions. It wasn't based on you or me at all. It was his choice. It was his desire. He had mercy on whom he had mercy. We were the clay or the ceramic, if you will. One commentator, in a very bold and really very disrespectful statement, calls this passage a bad analogy that Paul should never have written. And he's, he goes on to say, maybe you can do what you like with a thing, but you cannot do what you like with a person. He goes on to say that Paul was in anguish over his Israelite brothers, which is what drove him to write this bad theology or bad analogy. Now, at first, many of us might feel the exact same way, might want to agree with him because it would be easier for us if this passage wasn't here or if it was a mistake or if it was made in error. Maybe Paul was just too upset to think clearly. But we need to keep in mind, these are not the words of Paul. These are the words of God who inspired Paul through his spirit to communicate both the question and the answer to us. To make a statement about this being a bad analogy is to say that God used a bad analogy and that God cannot take this type cannot make this type of determination with people. Who are we to decide that? That that actually is an example of exactly what Paul is talking about here. How can we answer back to God about what's right and what's wrong, about what he can and can't use even as an analogy for us? This may be a difficult passage for us to accept, yet here it is. It's really not that difficult of a passage to comprehend. It's just that for some of us, it's hard to accept. We like to think that we have more control than what this is showing us. But in reality, 
We like to think that we have our own sovereignty over our lives, and we don't like it when we hear that we don't. I want to take you to a few Old Testament passages, because I want to show you something important about this. Turn with me back to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 29. Just so you know that that this isn't Paul going out on a limb alone here. This isn't the first time that this analogy has been used. It's been used many times in the Old Testament. This isn't something that Paul made up. Isaiah chapter 29, down in verse 15. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord, and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me. Or what is formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. You see, even in Isaiah's day, people had things turned around. The way people perceived God, perceived their relationship with God. He's the potter. We are the clay. We think we can fool God. We think that God owes us something or that God needs to listen to us. We make ourselves out to be more important than we really are. Isaiah 45. Turn to chapter 45 of Isaiah. Look down in verse 9. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. Verse 10, woe to him who says to a father, what are you beginning? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? We see the same thing here with the clay and the potter. We can't challenge our creator, our maker. He moves on then in verse 10 to talk about parents having children. How many of us had a say in what we were going to look like when we were born? None of us. We had no say. And yet, we sometimes have this attitude of, thanks God for making me, for breathing life into me, for taking me from nothingness and making me into a living being. Now, let me tell you how things are going to be. That's all wrong. Doesn't it make sense that he can do with his creation as he sees fit? Still in Isaiah, turn over to chapter 64. And here he makes mention of this again. In verses 6 through 7, the prophet is clearly referring to the lost condition of the people. He says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. Very similar to what Paul talks about in the first chapters of Romans, and what we're seeing in chapter 9. We're dealing again with the lost, sinful pool of humanity. But now look at what he says in verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. What does Isaiah realize? God is the potter, we are the clay. We are the work of his hand, that same example. Turn over with me to the prophet Jeremiah, the 18th chapter of Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah here has the most extensive example of this. Starting in verse 1 of Jeremiah 18, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel, as it pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Again, it's a very clear example. Can't God deal with his creation as a potter does with clay? God the Creator has sole power and authority over his creation. Just as he made the world as he wanted, he shapes me as he wants, does with me whatever he wants to do with me. This isn't a difficult analogy to understand. It's really very simple. The difficulty comes with submitting to it and accepting it. This analogy reduces me to a lump of clay. My dignity, my pride can't handle that. And that's why so many people do not want to believe that this is what it's saying. Why people come right out and say that God has no right to say this, or that Paul missed the boat and came up with a bad analogy. Yet, this is what we have here in Romans 9.21, as well as example after example in the Old Testament as well. It is the sovereign right of the potter to do whatever he wants with the clay. Does this make us squirm? Does this make us uncomfortable? It probably does for some of us. Well, if it does, then it's not about to get any better. Come back with me to Romans chapter 9. What does the potter do? He makes two different kinds of vessels out of the same lump of clay. One for honorable use, one for dishonorable or common use. What do you suppose this same lump of clay is? It's what we've been talking about. It's sinful humanity. It's the lump that we all come from. There's no distinction. There isn't a more righteous lump and a more sinful lump. It's the same lump. Jacob and Esau, same lump. Moses and Pharaoh, same lump. What if God had taken this lump, all sinners everywhere, and made all common vessels? not a single honorable vessel. That would have been his right to do that, and it would satisfy his requirements for justice. Quite frankly, that's what he probably should have done. It's what we all deserved. But instead, he didn't do that. He has chosen to take from this lump, from the same lump, and make some honorable things out of it. In the example here, the honorable vessel, this is the elect. This, these are those who will believe the gospel. The dishonorable vessel, these are the non-elect, those who will remain in the flesh. The potter is not making the lump sinful. He's not making sinful people. He is simply taking what he has to work with and using it for his own purpose, making whatever he desires, doing with it whatever he desires. And praise God, 
he desires to use some of it to make honorable vessels. In the next verses, Paul will refer to these vessels differently, and it will relate back to what he's already talked about. Honorable vessels are vessels of mercy. Common vessels are vessels of wrath. He deals with the vessels of wrath first. He says in verse 22, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? These are vessels through which God demonstrates his wrath and his power. They are the common vessels from verse 21. This is what we saw with Pharaoh. He was a vessel of wrath. God raised up Pharaoh for the purpose of making his name and his power known. God didn't make Pharaoh a sinful, wicked person. But he used a sinful, wicked person for his own purposes. His purpose being to demonstrate his power. These vessels of wrath, they are prepared for destruction. There's a question over who does the preparing. The verb tense here is passive. It may mean that they have prepared themselves through their own rejection. But I think the context shows that God is still the one who is preparing. God is the one doing the action through all of this. He is the potter who has made them into the common vessel, hardened them on their path to, this, to destruction. But that still does not mean that he has made them sinful. He has just given them over to that sin. Now this verse be, begs the question, why does God harden sinners and not just deal with them immediately? Why are they prepared for destruction and not just simply destroyed? Why doesn't God deal with their sinfulness immediately and just be done with them? Well, as it says here, he's willing to do that. But we also need to keep in mind that God is patient when it comes to sinners. It's because of the patience of God. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 2. We saw this already in our study in Romans, way back in the second chapter. Remember, I told you that even in these chapters we still need to remember our building blocks from the rest of the chapters that we've already gone through. Romans builds from chapter to chapter to chapter. In verse 4 of Romans chapter 2, we saw how God was dealing with sinful people. It says, Or do you, not, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. God allows time for the repentance of sinners. He endures their sin, gives them time even though they continue in their sin, so that there is opportunity for them to repent. But... Not all will repent. In fact, most will not repent. For those who don't repent, they are using the time to store up wrath for themselves. And who is responsible for this? What does he say in verse 5? Because of your stubbornness, unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. This is the responsibility of man for his own sin. But how can man be responsible for his own sin? 
He can't resist God's will, can he? That's the question we dealt with in Romans 9.20. And sorry, we can't ask that question. That is not for us to know. But wait. He gives them time. What exactly is this time for? If we're talking about those who are already prepared for destruction, destruction, what good does more time do for them? If he has sovereignly chosen to harden them, to prepare them for destruction, what good does his patience do for them? Nothing. Not a thing. But his patience is not really for them. It's not ultimately for the vessels of wrath. Look at the next verse, verse 23, back in Romans chapter 9. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Why has he endured the vessels of wrath? Why has he patiently allowed his allowed sin in his creation to continue? Because he is accomplishing a work of mercy. He has chosen some as vessels of mercy, vessels upon which he will place his mercy, and through whom his mercy will be known. He has chosen to take from this sinful lump of humanity and make some vessels upon which he graciously bestows mercy in order that he can make known the riches of his own glory. Just as his dealings with Pharaoh made known his power, his gift of salvation to those who don't deserve it shows the world all of creation his mercy and makes known the sum total of all of his attributes and his glory. These vessels he prepared beforehand for glory. He talked about this before, back in chapter 8. His elect, foreknown before the foundation of the world, they are glorified. We were predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God predestined us for glory, so that we might join his Son in glory, that he might be the firstborn, signifying that there would be others that follow after him. Who is our salvation for? It's not for us. It's for God. We were predestined for glory so that the riches of his glory might be made known. Just as Pharaoh demonstrated his power, we, believers, the vessels of mercy, demonstrate before all of creation the glory of God. This is completely backwards for us and completely humbling for us. And due to the influence of the world around us, this has become harder and harder for believers to swallow these days. The world around us preaches self-esteem and self-worth at every turn, every chance that we get. Human beings have a problem with an overdeveloped sense of self-worth and self-importance. And as believers, we get sucked into that as well. We go around thinking that we need to boost our self-esteem, our self-love, loving ourselves first before we can love others. You hear that stuff all the time. But you know what? People have never had a problem with that. Human beings have never had a problem with loving themselves too little. The problem is getting them to realize that they need to love themselves less than they already do. When we try to love ourselves more, what we really do is try to take the glory away from God. When we can magnify ourselves, why would we need to magnify God? As his children, 
those who were predetermined to be conformed to his son, where does our worth lie? Where is our value? It's not in us. We're just the clay. Our worth lies in what God has given us. If we are worth anything, it's only because we are found to be in him. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Paul says there, But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It's only in the work of Christ that we should boast, because it's to his work that we owe everything. Boasting in his choice of me, not based on anything that I did or wanted, but on his on what he desired. Isn't God wonderful? Isn't he amazing? Isn't he magnificent? Me? I'm just part of the lump, made into whatever he desired to make me. Am I happy that he has made me a vessel of mercy? Absolutely I am. Praise God that he did. And now we come to verse 24 and we see whom these vessels of mercy are comprised of. Verse 24, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Us whom he also called, his elect, his chosen ones, the ones that he has called. This is the effectual call of God, the call of God that cannot be refused. It's the call of God that was seen back in chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. I, I talked about it earlier. It says there, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. This is that unbreakable chain of salvation that Paul was showing us. The vessels of mercy are the ones who are called by God from among Jews and among Gentiles. The salvation of God pertains to anyone who comes to him by faith, regardless of nationality. God has chosen Jews, and he has chosen Gentiles, and he has a sovereign plan for each. This verse serves here as a segue to get from the discussion on God's sovereignty to how this will work with regard to the salvation of both Jews and Gentiles. Paul will develop this further as we go on in verses nine, in chapters 9 through 11. We'll tie this relationship together. So what have we seen? That it's all about God. It's not about us. When you go to a museum and you look at a beautiful painting, what do you want to know? What kind of paint is that? What kind of canvas is this on? If you're a true art lover... You might have a, curi- uh, have a curiosity about some of those things, but really, what do you want to know? Who made this? Who painted this? You hear a new piece of music that you really like. You ask, who is this? Who wrote this? It's about the creator, isn't it? That's what really matters. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll look at one more passage before we end for today. We've been in Ephesians chapter 2 many times in our study of Romans. The first verses talk about our state prior to salvation. Then verses 4 through 9 talk about God making us alive together 
with Christ, saving us by grace through faith. But look with me down at verse 10. Hopefully verse 10 is not the forgotten verse in this passage in Ephesians 2. Because this is the what now, or the sanctifying verse in this passage. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. After we have been justified, after we have believed in the gospel, after we have been reconciled to God, made alive through faith, we are to live, walk, according to the good works that he has prepared from eternity past. But I want you to see one word that is used at the very beginning of this verse. For we are his workmanship. That word workmanship, poema, is a word that means craftsmanship. Some use the term masterpiece here. It is that which has been crafted or made by the Almighty God. We, believers, are the craftsmanship of God. The work and the glory of God are to shine in us and through us because of what he has done for us and what he is doing in us. We exist to reveal him to the rest of the world, to the rest of creation. Why would I care about a guy named Mozart or Beethoven or Bach? if they hadn't written beautiful music that has been handed down for centuries, music that revealed them to us. Why would I know the names Michelangelo, Rembrandt, Picasso, if they hadn't created works of art that had been admired and loved? The craftsmanship of these artists is what revealed them to the world. And it's that same type of idea that Paul is presenting here in Romans 9. As believers, our lives should be a beacon for the glory of our Lord. We are his representatives. And our very character should make him known to the world around us. That is why he has shown mercy to us and made us his very own. Now, where do we go from here? We now are ready to talk about the plans that God has for Jews and Gentiles, Israel and the church. Without a proper understanding of the sovereignty of God, we cannot understand how God is working with both of those two groups today. And that's why Paul has set us up in these 24 verses with a discussion on God's sovereign choice. I truly believe that this is why so many people cannot understand how God is working with Israel today, or how he can still have plans for them. Because they do not get this. They do not understand the sovereign character of God. They miss what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 9. But we'll see in the coming weeks that God's sovereignty plays a vital role in what those plans are.